Welcome to Mosaics, a podcast featuring the vibrant and diverse stories of refugee resettlement in Idaho. I'm your host, Holly Beach, with the Idaho Office for Refugees. I'm so excited to share a keynote presentation and conversation with you all today. So every year, the Idaho Office for Refugees throws a big two-day conference. We draw in hundreds of people from all over the country. And this year, we were blessed to have Jane Chu be our keynote speaker. Now, Jane is a pretty amazing person. She is an illustrator, an artist. She served as chairperson of the National Endowment of the Arts. Now she's based in New York, and she travels the country to share the stories of refugees and immigrants. And she does this in a really cool, unique way of drawing keepsake items that they have that really show a unique piece of their story. So Jane came to Idaho from New York. She presented at our conference in February and um, joining the stage with her was Paulina Luangate. Now, Paulina is from Boise. You may have heard of her. She is the founder of the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora. Her own mother, Putasin, had to flee Laos when Paulina was just three years old. So Putasin, Paulina, and Jane all joined the stage together for a really powerful Q&A. And I'm looking forward to sharing that with you today. Enjoy. Well, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so honored to join you today, and I also want to uh, acknowledge the land on which we're meeting to respect the Native American peoples who came before us, and here specifically this includes the Shoshone, uh, the Bannock, and the Northern Paiute. And so, as Bernadette said, for most of my career, I have been on the administrative side of organizations where I worked, but I've been an artist since I was 15, and after my term in the federal government at the National Endowment for the Arts, I moved to the practicing side uh, of the artist side to work on my own projects. And so one of my projects is to tell the stories of people who have immigrated to the United States, stories that are told through their own keepsake memorabilia, and so with each person, I tell the story, and then they also select objects that represent meaningful experiences about their lives, and then I draw the objects as illustrations that accompany the story. And so it's my way of showing artistically how keepsake objects can play a role in reminding us about people's stories. And so one example comes from my mother, Yang Xufang. And here you can see her around age 43, living in Arkansas, when she received a letter from her dad, her Baba, in China. And there had been no communication between her and her family for 24 years. She missed them so much. And so the letter reads, my beautiful daughter, I miss you very much. I just received your letter, which tells about your life in the United States. We're all good back home, and the country is peaceful now. I'm 83 years old. I'm safe and healthy, and I'm living a good life. Your father, Yang Guan An, and it was written January 2, 1974. 24 years earlier, Baba had quietly snuck his daughter, my mother, out of China by herself, and this was during the change of government in 1949-1950, changing from the nationalist government to communist. And especially at the beginning, there was a lot of violence and oppression, and her parents decided that their daughter could be free if she left the country by herself. And so they agreed to cut off all communication with each other 
They had seen other situations where Chinese citizens had been imprisoned if they tried to leave, and so no letters, no calls, and of course there was no Skype or Zoom in 1949. Mother was born in China in 1929, and she was given the name Xu Fong. Baba was the church pastor in Qingdao, and, at the, and the family lived in the pastor's house next to the church. And so on Sundays, they would attend their worship service, and then on Wednesdays, American missionaries gave church members English classes, which my mother attended as a girl. And it was here in the English classes that the missionaries gave her the name, the American name of Rosemary. So Shufang's parents, began hearing about the changes that were taking place in the Chinese government, and some citizens were imprisoned if they did not agree with the new government attitudes. Many of the churches and places of worship were closed, and the missionaries were sent out of the country. And so there was a pastor in a nearby church who was also imprisoned, but nobody knew why. So when the soldiers showed up in Baba's office to question him, Xu Fong and her mother hid under the bed in their parish home, and the soldiers interrogated Baba about the church, and Baba had enough presence to stay calm and friendly instead of showing the soldiers how frightened he was inside. And so after the interrogation, the soldiers actually told Baba that the church could stay open for Sunday worship service, but they would have to cancel the weekly English class. But it really didn't matter anyway, because then, by then the community was so frightened by all of the changes, they stopped attending church. So the church closed, it was locked up, and it was turned into a military warehouse. So in the meantime, Baba quietly devised a plan to send Xu Fong to his brother's family, Xu Fong's third uncle. And so third uncle and his family had hidden inside a junk riverboat and sailed to Hong Kong without anybody knowing. And there were no more junk riverboats available, so very discreetly, Baba bought a one-way ticket to Hong Kong on a train, which was a little over 1,000 miles away from home, and it would take eight days to get there. And so not only did they make a pact that they would not communicate with each other, Baba also did not tell third uncle that she was coming. Uh, they, didn't, they knew that if the government found out that, and Xu Fong did not have any travel permission papers with her, and they knew that if the government found out that Baba would be persecuted. So Xu Fong tried to look as inconspicuous as possible in order to blend in with the other passengers on the train. So she didn't carry any suitcases, she didn't carry any luggage, she put on eight pairs of underwear, one over the other, and she pinned a pouch of money on her underwear. And so she and her parents walked to the train station just casually as if they were taking a stroll, and then she got on the train, they didn't know it at the time, but that would turn out to be the last time they'd ever see each other. There were hundreds of passengers on the train. They were crammed in the train, and so over the eight-day train ride, the process was that at every stop along the way, guards would get on the train, and they'd inspect the travel permission of everybody on board, and so Xu Fang watched other passengers being taken off the train. And the woman sitting next to her explained that they were being arrested and jailed because they didn't have travel permission papers. 
So Xu Feng sat in petrified silence, but her mind was racing in fear, trying to figure out what to say when they would ask her for her papers. Should I tell them that I don't have any? Should I tell them I lost them? She counted the number of towns where the train stopped to check for permission papers. Two, three, four, on and on. 25, 48, 100, 135. The train stopped at 141 towns along her journey, but somehow the guards skipped her every time. So eight days later, the train arrived in Hong Kong at the Hong Kong border. And everybody had to pass through two border guards. Guard number one would check for travel permission papers to leave mainland China. And guard number two would check for permission records to enter Hong Kong, which was owned by the British at the time. And of course, Xu Feng had no travel permission, nor did she have a British passport. So after about three hours of waiting in line, she reached guard number one and said, I'm going to visit my uncle, but I didn't know I needed to have my travel permission papers with me. I am so sorry. Please, would you let me pass through anyway? Success, guard number one waved her through without any questions. And before she could say anything else, guard number two also waved her through. So at last, Xu Fong was in Hong Kong. Let's see. So next, she needed to find third uncle and aunt and their family who lived in the Sha Tin village neighborhood, but they didn't know she was coming. So she spent the rest of the money in her pouch to buy an inner city train ticket. But that inner city train whizzed by the Sha Tin village station and Xu Fang was so startled, she quickly wrote a note to the passenger beside her. Why didn't the train stop at the Sha Tin village? Well, we are on an express train, not a regular city train, he wrote. The train does not stop until it reaches the Kowloon Peninsula. The Kowloon Peninsula, that's 16 miles away from Hong Kong. So now Xu Fang is really starting to feel queasy. She boarded the wrong train. She spent the rest of her money, and now she's going to the wrong place. So two hours later, the train arrived in Hong Kong, and I mean in Kowloon. So it arrived in Kowloon, and Xu Fang remembered that when the missionaries were run out of her father's church, one of them actually went to Kowloon. So maybe she could find the missionary. Maybe he could help her find third uncle. So she noticed a car parked beside a nearby house as she walked around. And that looks just like the car that the missionary had in my father's church before they were run out, she thought. So she walked up to the front gate of the house and rang the bell. And this woman looked out the peephole door. Well, hello, I am looking for the missionary who was in my father's church in Qingdao, she said. But the woman feared that Xu Fong was part of the new communist government, so she slammed the peephole door shut in Xu Fong's face. So now Xu Fong is walking away from this house, homesick and hungry, and she is longing for a bowl of her mother's noodles. So when all of a sudden, the front door flings open, and there's the missionary. Where are your parents? How did you get out by yourself? So the missionary was so stunned that she made it out and he gave her a big hug. You have surprised me, he said, and now I will surprise you. So when they walked into the missionary's house, there in the living room sat third uncle. His family had never, they'd lived in the Shatin village uh, neighborhood for two years, but had never visited the missionary in Kowloon until that day. 
So Shufang went to live with third uncle and aunt and their family. She was accepted to college in Ohio and moved to the United States. And by 1973, China and the United States began to improve their relationship, so Shufang took a chance and did write a letter back to her baba saying that she was doing fine in America, she was 43 years old by then, she had married, she had a daughter, and when she became a naturalized citizen of the United States, she changed her name officially from Shufang to Rosemary, the name the American missionary had given her in her church English class when she was a girl. So Rosemary never saw her family again, never saw her father again, her parents. Her father had died soon after he wrote his letter, and her mother had already died. But the letter from Baba is the object that reminded her of the brave actions he took to give his daughter her freedom. That's what objects do. They open the door to rich stories of humanity. Another example is Abi Abeba Jr. Abi Abeba Jr. was born in Ethiopia, and he now lives in Washington, D.C. He never met his dad. His dad was Abi Abeba Sr. Abi Abeba Sr. had been the chief of staff to Haile Selassie, the emperor of Ethiopia in the 1960s. Actually, Abi Jr.'s dad held a bunch of positions in the Ethiopian government over the years. He was the Ethiopian ambassador to France. He was the minister of defense. He was the governor of Eritrea at one time. And everybody called him General Abi because he had been a general in the Ethiopian army. But Abi Jr. didn't know any of this stuff because in 1974, there was a government overthrow in Ethiopia by a junta, a group of people who did not like the Ethiopian government. So the junta formed their own military group and then they violently took over the Ethiopian government by brute force so they were not voted in by the people. And the violent junta was called the Derg and the Derg took 60 men from Haile Selassie's government and executed them by firing squad and threw their bodies into an unmarked mass grave. And so the families who lost their loved ones were not only devastated by the murders, but they also could not give them a proper funeral or a burial because they didn't know where the bodies were located. So this all happened one month before Abi Jr. was born because his mother was eight months pregnant with him. So a month after General Abi was executed, Abi Jr. was born. So Abi Jr. never knew his dad. But during his life, General Abi had traveled to about 30 different countries when he accompanied Emperor Haile Selassie. And General Abi left behind his soldier uniform medals that were given to him from other countries when they were traveling and cultivating international diplomatic relations. And these medals were made from silver and gold and they have rubies and diamonds set in the medals given to General Abi from people like the President of France, Queen Juliana of the Netherlands, the President of Haiti, the King of Jordan, the President of Lebanon, the president of Germany, Sudan, Thailand, South Korea, Poland. By the time General Abi died, he had been presented with medals and gifts from more than 30 countries representing six continents. When the Dirk took over, they first took the 60 men 
from Haile Selassie's government, and they put them in prison for no reason. And a few days before the execution, General Abi overheard that the Derg was planning to execute them, and General Abi sent a message to his pregnant wife. He told her that he might not live to see the child. He asked her to please give the unborn child his medals and name the child after him. And if you are familiar with the traditional Ethiopian custom of naming a child, it is not customary to name a child, in particular a son, after the father. Some traditions do use the name Junior, for example, or the third for a son with the same name as the father, but not in Ethiopia. Traditionally, General Abi's request to give, to give the unborn child his medals and give him the same name was his way of establishing a relationship with this son that he would never know. So as he grew up in Ethiopia, Abi Jr. lived through curfews, lack of food in the grocery store, lack of gasoline for the car, house searches, beatings of his family, violent oppression, and by 1990, when he was 15, the Derg began to draft teenage boys into their army, and Abi Jr.'s mother was so afraid that this same junta that murdered her husband, Abi Jr.'s father, would draft Abi Jr. into their army. So she found a way to slip her son into a boarding school in the United States and got him out of the country. Abi Jr. started his new life completely over. He did not know a single word of English. It would take 11 more years before he would become a naturalized citizen of the United States. But today, Abi Jr. lives in Washington, D.C. He has two master's degrees. He speaks five languages. So Abi Jr. may not have had the same opportunity to know his father like other kids know their fathers. But his keepsake objects, his father's medals, are the tangible legacy that gives him a more complete relationship with his father that he never knew. And finally, there's Dr. Paulina Luangate. When Polina decided to launch the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora here in Boise, she, like any good entrepreneur, already had a vision for how this new nonprofit would serve the public. But Polina's entrepreneurial skills didn't, did not develop from taking business courses. Instead, they developed from her journey through the, through the jungles along the Mekong River in 1979 in order to escape the massacres by communist soldiers during the Laotian Civil War. Paulina was three years old when her mother decided to slip her out and her five-year-old brother as well out of Laos. And so for two and a half weeks, they walked through wooded jungles. They took brief naps here and there but kept on walking. When they napped, they slept near massacre sites or up in trees to avoid being seen. When they saw communist soldiers in an area, they hid behind bushes and trees. In the middle of the night, they floated across the Mekong River in a hollowed out log. Crocodiles and scavenger catfish swam under the water. They made it out of Laos, stayed in refugee camps in Thailand and in the Philippines for a couple of years, and ultimately, settled in the United States where Polina, her mother and brother, are now naturalized citizens living here in Idaho. Polina and her family wore the same clothes throughout their escape from Laos. But Polina's mother packed one special item for her, a Laosinoi, a little sarong as a keepsake. And before they left Laos, her mother had hired a Lao weaver 
in their hometown of Paxe to weave on a loom a one-of-a-kind scene, a sarong made from Lao cotton. And on top of the sarong, the weaver hand-sewed silk designs of chickens in bright colors. What a fun piece of clothing for a child to wear. So these entrepreneurial qualities that Polina mustered to launch the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora were shaped by her family's experience out of Laos, and at the same time showing Idaho and the rest of the world that objects can tell the stories of refugees from many other countries, just as the hand-woven sinoid sarong has done for Polina. So these stories that I have presented today are just a sampler of refugees who have lived through harrowing experiences just to survive, and everybody here today knows many more such stories. These refugees have demonstrated an ability to create what was needed at the right time and carry it through. They took risks for the greater good. They tried to figure out how to address hidden problems in advance. And how do you make good decisions when you don't have all the information? Sometimes we may not get everything right. Sometimes, like Rosemary Chu, we may find out we've gotten on the wrong train. But the key piece of information here is that Rosemary Chu did not give up. Instead, she thought of another option. And time after time, refugees have not given up. Sometimes at first, we may not have enough information to help those who have newly arrived in the United States. But one way of helping them know that we care can be through their keepsake objects. Ask them to identify an object that's meaningful to them. Listen to their story unfold, and we will see their amazing personal qualities emerge. We will see a strength in them that many of us who are not refugees wish we had, and we will learn from them. So I'd like to ask Dr. Paulina Luanke to come to the stage and join me. Will you please welcome her? And now before we get started, we're going to have a little bit of a question and answer. And before we get started though, Oh, and after the question and answer, we're going to, I'm going to be a timekeeper, too, just to make sure everybody's uh, doing great on this. But uh, after we uh, have a conversation, I'm, we want to open it up to you to ask anything that you want. But first, uh, Paulina, I would like to ask you if you would introduce another special guest. Hello. Good morning, everyone. It's a pleasure to be with all of you. I'm so humbled and so honored to be sharing the stage with Jane Chu, such a renowned artist. Uh, it is such a delight to share the stage, additionally, with my hero, uh, my rock. My voice is cracking just thinking about it. But if I could have my beautiful mother, Sin Luangkit, join me on the stage, please. Please welcome her. Welcome, uh, Polina and Putasin Lonquet. Maybe we can sit down and have a conversation. Thank you. 
Well, uh, we, I'm sitting beside two very brave people, and uh, thank you so much for sharing your story with us. Uh, you've gone through a harrowing journey, um, but, uh, and you knew how to uh, get through something in the midst of not having all the information. Uh, we're so honored to meet you. Uh, a couple of questions, though. Uh, looking back, can you remember um, what the most difficult part was about leaving Laos? Did, did you get all of that? <laughs> so I will speak on behalf of mom. Her uh, English is a little bit broken, and so uh, she has given me authority to speak on behalf of the family. So as you can imagine, leaving your origin homeland, leaving your home, leaving anyone's home, is, is a decision not to be made lightly. But sometimes those decisions, you don't have a choice. You don't even have a moment to think about it. It's, it's your life or death. And so for mom, her decision was really grounded on knowing that her children, her two children, my older brother and myself, could have a better life outside of the country that she so much loved. And the most difficult decision was really making that decision and leaving her entire family behind. So we are the only, she is the only out of all of her siblings that left Laos. Can you imagine leaving on foot with uncertainty for two and a half years not knowing with two young children? Thank you. Uh, what about coming to the United States? What was the most uh, unique part or unusual or maybe difficult part about coming to the United States? So did you get that? <laughs> so growing up, I have been told over and over that she was not impressed with the thought of coming to the US. Can you imagine that? Because when the communists took over Laos, they actually showed tons of propaganda. And we and she watched a lot of Clint Eastwood's Spaghetti Western. <laughs> so why would we want to flee our home to go somewhere where it seemed to be a little bit 20, 30, 40 years behind even Laos at the time. So the, it was difficult, but we had learned that my father's side of the family was here in the States, and because she had no other family members here, she felt that the U.S. would be a safe haven. Oh, were you, when you first arrived in the United States, do you remember any special surprises or uh, unique experiences that really were startling? Well, it was not like the Clint Eastwood Spaghetti Western, but she did wonder though, as we flew over the Treasure Valley and into Boise, she thought, did I make the right decision coming here? It was so, and, and if you're from here, you would know what Boise looked like back in the 80s, right? And so she was worried that um, there would be a sense of isolation. Uh, she would have no one, no community members to help support her human journey through the transition of a newly resettled refugee. 
As a side note, uh, I, I hear many stories similar to that, and I know when my mother arrived in the United States, it happened to be October 31st, and she, had, she, she went into shock. This is one of the reasons I asked that question, because she just went into shock like, Where, what, you know, have I gone to the right place? That's exactly the same kind of comment, because they didn't celebrate that Halloween the same way. So, well. We did come around October, and I, I don't remember Halloween because I was too young, but what I remember was the magical, were the magical moments of the holiday festivities. And we thought that Christmas was really a time for the community to give us gifts. <laughs> and as you can imagine, as a, as a little kid and seeing the bright lights and the smell of the pine trees and the Christmas trees, I just wanted to lay under there and have gifts drop on me. <laughs> you can ask my husband over there that uh, every Christmas I have to sleep, I can't sleep under the Christmas tree anymore. I'm too big, so I have to sleep by the Christmas tree. Oh, well, you certainly deserve to have gifts at any holiday. Um, what do you miss most about Laos? Family, right? Family and her culture, I was too young to remember all of it, but having observed mom's journey independent of her being my mother, it's clear that she missed her culture. She had even shared with me that she was afraid that the United States would not have her food, the Lao food. So she actually hid chili pepper, a chili pepper pod, in her flip-flops. It was like a, an encased flip-flop to smuggle into the United States. Mom was a smuggler. <laughs> she was a spicy smuggler. <laughs> what was most helpful in getting you and your family settled here in Idaho? That's easy. You. You, you, and you. Give me a moment, please. We were sponsored by the Christian Coalition. Five churches that took us in. And I remember going to church every Sunday for five years. That'll probably stop me crying there. <laughs> five years, eight to five, five different churches. It felt like a never-ending meeting on meetings, on meetings. So the simple answer is, do I go to church? No. <laughs> it's like going to church right now. <laughs> but really, through the acts of kindness, today's theme, connection, connecting the communities to people who may be a little bit lost still in their human journey sharing your experiences with them and being part of their lived experiences is something quite profound and special. Thank you. How do you think your journey has shaped you? Both of you. For, for mom, she, her journey was becoming an American, an American, solid in American core values, but continuing to preserve our cultural heritage or cultural legacy. 
And as you can tell, I'm wearing, we are both wearing our beautiful Lao Sidon, which is sarong, which means sarong. And that is the legacy I carry forward from mom. Staying true to our roots, staying grounded to our core values. It's okay to be American. It's okay to be Lao. It's okay to be American Lao. It's okay to be Lao American. But we are Idahoans now. Tell us a little bit more about your scene. Um, what made you, Polina, identify this as your keepsake object when I was saying, what would you select? Well, I actually brought it with me, my little Sidnoi. I'm so grateful that mom, mom keeps everything. Right? She keeps everything. Even the plastic bag in the refugee camp that we all received to put our minimal belongings in as we journeyed out of the refugee camps into the United States. That bag was well preserved, and I don't, maybe she had a bag on top of a bag and she put that bag in it. I don't know, but here. Can you see why I can't sleep under the Christmas tree anymore? <laughs> well, because of your harrowing journey from Laos to beautiful Idaho, what have been your greatest sources of joy? Ooh, gosh, there's so many. But I, I'd like to keep it. Well going to get me emotional, but my, my greatest sense of joy is being able to share my journey as a Lao refugee, as a Lao, as an American, as an Idahoan, as a daughter, as a wife, with the people that I love, with my community, to share this journey of creating something special that no longer belongs to me. So the Idaho Museum of International Diaspora is no longer Polina's museum. It's our museum. It's Idaho's museum that we are going to gift to the world and show the world what Idaho is made of. And it's because of all of you and the work that you've done to bring us together, to show us that we are not just programs, not just initiatives, but we are the heartstrings and the heartbeats that make Idaho so beautiful. Let's open it up to you if you have any questions and we're going to switch around the mics. I'll be the person in charge of the mic up here and we're going to hand another mic out there because there are so many of you here. And um, I will be, we've got some great time to ask all kinds of questions that you may have and I'm going to also be the timekeeper to make sure that you get out and get a break before the next session as well. So who would like to begin? Hi, my name is Emmy. I'm with the IRC here in Boise. Um, your story really resonated with me as my mom also was born, or was in a refugee camp in Cambodia, or in Thailand, and came to the United States. Oh, I'm gonna stand up. <laughs> um, one thing that my family found difficult was to maintain culture coming to the United States like Cambodian New Year's. I was wondering how it was for you guys to maintain things like Lao New Year's um, and different cultural holidays, I guess, in the United States. 
Well, thank you so much for asking that question, Emmy. You know, staying grounded on your core values come from somewhere, right? It comes from your cultural heritage, your family culture, or your um, national culture. And for us, it was we spoke 100% Lao in the household. We ate Lao food. Mom made strong efforts, active efforts, to engage me in the activities of the Lao community. I'm up here now as a modern American woman, an entrepreneur, and I'm wearing my cultural heritage sedan. And it's okay to practice those elements in your life, and it's okay to share them. I hope that answered your question. I love going around the table and asking folks. Oh, there's Tara. First, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It's stories like this that help workers like me understand what's going on on a deeper level. So thank you very much. I wanted to ask you, how you envision such a beautiful museum as a gift to Idaho? Well, thank you for asking that question. You know, this is such a big project that's taken a life of its own. It happened in the middle of the night and I wrote a six-page document and it just took off in August, actually in June of 2018 and now it's gone global. We don't even have a structure yet. We don't even have land yet. Not yet, anyways, right? And so the museum has taken a life of its own that we have empowered global leaders to take the philosophical approach of past, current, future, learn, discover, explore of the museum and apply it into their strategies and of how to connect communities to cultures of the world. And we have been using models here that many of you are already doing in your work uh, across the communities, but also in your organizations at a local, state, or national level. And we have empowered and bonded, partnered with others, not just here in Idaho, but outside of the United States even, to carry this forward. We are launching our first global conference in Slovakia this September. I, I mean, the first day we'll have the foreign affairs minister to speak with me on stage. Our second conference will be launched in 2024, and that is on the internationalization of university curriculum design, where we would impact curriculum design across all universities in Laos, in the entire country. Slovakia will be talking about the critical role of diaspora in cultural museums, and how we can influence transformational change, which is really the mission of the, of the IMED. And in 2025, I have some uh, colleagues here who are the IMIDS, the museum's acronym, academic and research team. One is a, well, they are National Geographic Explorers. We have a filmmaker here from Canada. Uh, we plan to incorporate diaspora, human journey stories of people who've been displaced in climate conversations, in environmental conversations. And we're aiming for Peru in 2025. We're not small. Don't you wish you had more vision? <laughs> yeah. 
I have a question. And if anyone has a question while they're speaking, please raise your hands and we'll find you. Um, but I'm over here, Paulina. Oh, <laughs> I was like, I was going to say to the left, but to your right. Um, I love this idea of storytelling through the keepsake, keepsake object. And Polina, I know you've been asked many, many times to tell your story. So how was it different for you or what did it mean for you to have you, this request to tell your story through the angle of a keepsake object? Oh, gosh. Holly, I think that was a Miss Universe question. Being here on the stage with two phenomenal women, my beautiful mom, my beautiful friend Jane Chu, uh, being inspired, I mean, I'm getting goose pimples just sitting here next to them, and plus it, the cold air is blowing behind me. <laughs> Maybe that's it. But to be here with them and to be inspired by their legacies is quite profound. I was challenged, not a lot of things intimidate me, but this particular project was a growth journey for me particularly because Jane asked me questions that I had not revisited for a long time and it then triggered me to talk to mom further and we had moments where it was emotional and bonding and I so appreciated that. Life is a journey and there's one chapter opens, another chapter ends. It's full of growth opportunities, beautiful aspects, downhills. You just have to navigate through it. And this really gave me a different perspective of realizing how special our own stories are and how special they can be integrated into all of our other stories in the communities. Colin? Hi, Colin. This is kind of a personal question, so I understand if your mother does not want to answer it. But when she arrived to Idaho and she's going through the stress of not having family and trying to establish the fam her new family here, um, what did she do to kind of stay sane and, and keep her health? Yeah. Yeah, that, that very is a, a personal question which I know she would be happy to answer. So I'll, prov I'll answer for her because we went through that together as, as mother and daughter. And it was really being grounded in our cultural heritage. So Emmy, going back to that, talking and sharing stories. I remember the folkloric stories that mom would tell me. Uh, and I still remember those. And her teaching me how to do Lao math, which was interesting, right? We certainly did not, in, we certainly did not research Calgary. <laughs> That's an inside joke for Colin. But, but really, it was staying grounded um, in our cultural heritage, eating our cultural foods, and sitting down with the family with my big brother and I on the living room floor, because that was culturally appropriate. And mom would share stories about my grandmother and her sisters, and it just, that's what binds you, that's what keeps you whole, is to know that life is so much more than just yourself. Yes, yeah, so, okay, Holly's coming. You're more than welcome to come on stage. Oh. Um, I was just wondering how long had it been, um, if she's gone back to the homeland, and um, how long was it between 
Yeah. 11 years. Yeah, 11 years. Nobody knew we were alive. Yeah, nobody knew we were alive because she was afraid to write letters back to her family to let them know that we made it. Afraid that they would be punished for her actions. So we just showed up. <laughs> we showed up and, oh my gosh, it just was, oh, yeah, I remember flying from Thailand, obviously from Boise, into Thailand, and then Thailand into Laos. And I was 17 then, I was quite emotional. I just, an immense amount of emotions took over me. And mom reached over and grabbed my hand and said, as we were flying, will you forgive me? Will you forgive me if we don't get to go back? I was like, go back? Go back where? If we don't get to go back to the United States. If the communists detain us, that's it. We're not going to be able to come back. Wow. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm a 17-year-old American. Who's going to detain me? <laughs> well, here I am, right? <laughs> no. Um, I was just wondering, you mentioned the uh, religious groups that um, were part of your uh, adjustment. What would you wish that they understood or um, were mindful of in their help to you um, with their particular, um, not agenda, but um, perspective bringing in? What would you wish that they maybe um, could have known? Oh... You know, Mom and I had talked about that quite a bit because I had asked her why it took us so long, five years, and going to all these, these churches. But she had talked very amicably, very favorably of the churches. I mean, they were very good people. And many of them went on missionaries to Southeast Asia. So they knew the culture, they knew the people, they knew the situation coming in. And I have to say that they exercised patience and grace. And it was just wonderful to be with kind-hearted um, Idahoans. Uh, we, no suggestions. We, our experience were just wonderful. Yes. I can hear you. Mm -hmm. Yes. So I was listening to you with the goal of repeating it and then hearing Jane saying repeating it. So I'm like, ah, so what was the question again? How did, how did you navigate as a teenager? Continue, please. How did you navigate as a teenager with coming from a different culture and being here in America? How did you bring all that together? Well, I let my drama queenness roar. <laughs> yeah, sometimes you just have to let loose, right? But I was conflicted at times with my own identity. I had struggled a little bit with the English language, as you can imagine, coming here, not being born here, and with a single mother, relying on you to help her navigate through life between the Lao language and between English. Yes, I struggled a lot. And it was really 
disheartening for me to just question constantly in my head, well, I'm Idahoan, I'm American, I'm Lao, what am I? But at the same time, realizing and recognizing mom's struggles. So again, taking myself out of the me, 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 and into I need to help my family, right? So whatever it is that I need to do for myself needs to be on, on pause at times. I mean, I helped mom close on her house at the age of 10. What child does that? I know many of you have. But it was hearing in the background the title company people, the realtors, making comments that as a teenager, you know that they're not trying to support your family. They're kind of making fun of your family and mom's lack of English. So that really got to me. And I thought, I need to do something with who I am. I need to be somebody who can be a little bit more of a foundation, a rock for my mom. So the course for me in navigating through this was that I need to learn all that I can so that way when my mom calls on me, I am there for her. And I can speak on, on behalf of the family and I can, she can be confident in my competency to be able to help her through challenging times as a new American. So it's really looking at who I am Lao first, and I still am very Lao, and it's okay to be your culture first and then American. It's okay to be whatever you want to be, right? But realizing that this is a journey that you carry forward with your cultural legacy, and as you meet people along the way, you're taking a part of their life's lessons with you so that you can only perfect and improve on what it is that you're trying to do and being humbled along the way. Humility is tremendous. And I have had to learn to exercise humility often, and I'm grateful for those who have stopped me and said, let's talk about this. So I have grown a lot to where I'm at, and that really is through humility. Hi, um, I'm a third generation Chinese Idahoan myself. I'm over here. And um, so I appreciate um, the stories that you are sharing. And so it's very, very um, touching that to hear your journey. Um, I also work for the West Ada School District. And so um, was there a memory that you had in Idaho schools that would help educators understand students from other cultures? Thank you for asking that question. Yes, there was an embarrassing memory that I had. Franklin Elementary off of Emerald, well, what street is that? Franklin, yeah, Franklin and Orchard. Franklin Elementary, Franklin and Orchard. <laughs> Thank you, see, I needed the help of the community. I was really testing you. It is no longer there, but I remember in third grade, there was a news station that came out to record the services of the school to the refugee students. And I was ill-prepared. I knew nothing. And they chose a refugee child just for the sake of, oh, here, let's get this person, right? Arbitrarily picking and choosing and not being intentional, not, not applying the 
compassionate human lens. I froze. I sat there and stared at the computer screen. Yes, back then they did have a computer screen. And I froze and the camera was on me and I, I didn't know what was going on. Nobody prepared me. And so if I can offer a message um, and ask of all of you is, know what you're getting yourself into when you are working with refugees or new arrivals. Across the entire generation, right? You have children who may not be prepared to engage in certain things. You have adults who may not be prepared. And so work with them, apply patience, apply grace, apply compassion. It was an embarrassing moment, but that was part of my journey as a drama queen in perfecting uh, anything that I do, and that is because I don't ever want to be put in a position like that again. Oh, hi, um, this is Winnie Christensen. Hey, so I was wondering at what, so coming to a new area, there's always culture shock and there's the adrenaline of adapting and maybe you don't have time for it and afterwards you have the shock and then it wears off and you acclimate, not assimilate, you acclimate. So when did your culture shock begin and when did it end mm -hmm. for the purposes of people understanding these things? Yeah. Thanks for asking that question, Winnie. So my, my experience was different. I'm gonna speak on behalf of mom I came here and started kindergarten, so it wasn't, I don't remember a whole lot of culture shock other than I want to sleep under the Christmas tree at times. But for mom, it, it really was a culture shock for her, right? Not knowing how the system works. You don't pay bills like how we pay bills here in the United States. And so trying to even write a check, trying to understand monthly dues was hard, and then trusting in people. So she told me a story once where she had to go to work, and she had missed the bus, and she was downtown, and she saw a carload of guys. So she ran up to the carload of guys, and they said, hey, we're going to McCall, you wanna come party with us? <laughs> and she said, take me to work, <laughs> take me to work. And they're like, oh no. Yeah, we're going to McCall, you need to go catch the bus. But can you imagine that scenario in a bigger city? Right? So for her, it was, ooh, I need to apply a little bit of more caution um, because I have two children at home. For mom also, it is uh, the culture shock. Here in the States, we look at people. We look at you and your, uh, look at the eyes. We sometimes examine you. But in, in our culture, in the Lao culture, oftentimes our heads are down. Women are not often outspoken. So you can see why I'm so different in my own culture, because they're just like, who are you? And why are you crossing your legs? And why are you sitting up straight and tall and speaking so confidently? It's, it's different here. And mom had to navigate through that. But one thing that mom told me time after time, and this was reinforced, and I will always remember this, this was her gift to me, is that never let anybody tell you no. She was a single mom, because my father had left, abandoned us, and if she took the no's, we would have never been here. She said, if they tell you no, you just go around that. If, that, 
next level is a no, you go around that. And you just keep going around until you can forge ahead. Just don't stop. Nobody can tell you what to do except for me. So that was her message to me. <laughs> so when she says no, it's no. <laughs> Is it? Hi there. Um, I just wanted to thank your mom for all the bravery that she has. Um, it's remarkable to, I am a, um, I was raised here in Idaho and I've heard all of the stories that my, um, all the things that my mom had to go through and my parents had to go through. And it just amazes me the amount of resilience that our refugee parents have um, to this day. So I just wanna thank your mom um, in being so brave um, to bring two young kids here to America. Um, I wanted to see if you could share the biggest obstacle that you have had um, as a teenager, as a refugee, uh, teenage girl growing up in America, and I wanna see if your mom can share, um, or if you can share for her, her biggest obstacle um, as a refugee single mother. Mm -hmm. Oh, powerful questions. แม่น่าอันนี้แล้วว่าขอบใจละหลายที่เจ้าเอาพวกซึ่งขนอยมากแล้วเราแบบยินดีได้มาพบเจ้าจะกระนุบเราขอบใจจะบอกแล้วก็
Mom is very passionate about volunteerism, about community work, because of the work that you're all doing that she was part of. And so it really helped her to have a strong sense of belonging. For me, my biggest challenge was how do I grow up fast? How do I grow up fast? And so some of you may have heard I graduated high school at 15, not because I was smart, but just because I knew how to navigate through the system. And I wanted to be a doctor. Actually, mom wanted me to be a doctor. Uh, but I did end up in the healthcare system. But my whole focus was, how do I grow up fast so that adults can take me seriously? So when I go and represent mom, they would take me seriously. How do I learn the language? How do I learn how to navigate through complex conversations, through complex processes, so I can be ahead of the game to support mom and my family? Yes. Hi, thanks again for sharing your story. Um, super powerful. Um, some of the folks I've spoken to who are newly arrived Americans have said it's difficult to set longer-term goals just because so much of their energy is spent on just surviving. Um, so my question is, what inspired you um, or let you dream big to become the amazing people you are today? Gosh, thanks for asking that question. Three letters, M-O-M. -M. Not O-M-G, but M-O-M, -M, right? Mom. Mom was a visionary still is, she planned her escape. She planned it for a while, to the point where she actually started buying furniture and even a, a buffalo to suggest to the communists that she wasn't going anywhere. But all of that coming in was that she would build equity so she can start selling them off for money to buy gold for our escape. When we got to the United States, I mean, all I heard was, you need to go be a doctor, you need to go be a doctor. I mean, I heard that since I was in kindergarten. Uh, very typical, right? So I remember her talking to my brother and I and saying, when you get to a certain age, this is when we newly arrived, I want to buy a house. And she worked two jobs. And she was making $2.15 an hour. And then she ended up working three jobs at one time. But she saved on her own $10,000. $10,000 for a down payment on the house that she lives in now that she owns on her own since 1986. That is quite an accomplishment. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. For me, I love strategy so much that I pursued getting my doctorate. So I have a doctor in strategic leadership with a concentration in strategic foresight. So when I served, when I was invited to serve as the advisor to the Idaho Lao community back in 2017, I instantly thought, I need to get to know the community. So I reached out to Tara Wolfson and started that relationship. And I started to hear stories of what you've heard here these past uh, yesterday and today, stories of survival, story of resiliency, and stories of renewal. And it is the collective stories of my mother's, my own, and all of yours, including the people, the organizations that work to support refugees and immigrants, 
it dawned on me that, oh my gosh, why not create something collectively? Because me, as an Idaho Lao, cannot mobilize this on my own. So why not harness the forces of all of you and the energy and move this thing forward? And all these thoughts rushed through my head at 12.35 AM, and that's when I wrote the six-page document. I think we have time for two more questions. Run, Tara, run. <laughs> Tara, I'm going to beat you anyways. <laughs> I did, yes. I have a loud voice. <laughs> oh, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, first of all, I just want to say thank you so much for sharing your story. It really resonated with me and my fellow colleagues here who share a similar, you know, refugee or immigrant story with our family, so thank you. Um, and I really wanted to ask you guys, um, from someone who um, provides a service of cash assistance and financials, um, hearing your, you speak about um, learning how to do like the monthly dues and the utilities. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, um, what would you um, recommend to help build that trust between you know, someone as a service provider such as me and the families that we welcome in, honestly, weekly basis <laughs> at our agency? Um, just to you know, build that trust and relationship that we will help take care of them. And once our abilities run out, we will ensure we, um, we give them a warm handoff to be self-sufficient and um, be able to take care of their needs. <laughs> oh, th thank you for asking that question. I honestly think you're already doing it, right? That you're, you're here, you're connecting with people and you're working directly for, uh, with the refugee populations. So you're already doing that. I think female empowerment is very huge, especially with mom. And it was people who didn't, who taught her how to fish, coached her through it, and that's so important. And I'm not here to talk about the differences between one culture or the next, but if you have a husband and a wife, they're both working, that's a partnership right there. You need to help each other out. And so helping to build um, trust with your clients that you are, you are here to help show them how to do things that pretty much support the family unit and, and thrive in the community and prepare them, this is strategic foresight, for the changes that are coming to the world, right? And I was just talking to my husband, my husband Ronnie, hello, sweetheart, yay! <laughs> Thank you for being here. 1962, Hanna-Barbera. Who knows the Flintstones and the Jetsons? Yeah. Yes, yes. And I know, some of you know, but you're not raising your hands. <laughs> 1962, the Jetsons. How did the producers know what would happen later on in the years? That cartoon in the Jetsons was positioned for 2062. You had Zoom. You had telemedicine, you had WebEx, you had the Apple Watch. That happened in the Jetsons, it's happening now. So prepare your clients for what's changing because digital technology is not gonna slow down. How, you know, my mom had to write, know how to write checks. Who uses checks anymore? 
right? So showing them how to navigate through that. One final question. There's two. There's two. Hello. Hi. Um, I would just like to thank you and your mom for sharing the story and being so vulnerable. I will give shout outs to our parents, our mom, especially for me. My mom was the one to like make me go, 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 go until where I am right now. And I appreciate all of that that she have done for me as a mom. And thanks to all the moms. And I know all the refugee moms out there are the ones who are pushing their kids to go to succeed in life for sure. That's 100%. Um, my question, I guess, will be like, what advice will you give out to newcomers who are coming into Idaho? Something, just an advice. Um, but yeah, thank you so much, mom. And thank you, Paulina. Thank you. My one advice is, have courage. My second advice, sorry, is trust in your community to help shoulder the burden that you might be experiencing. And then let go, be free. We want to thank you for the work that you're doing. It's so important. Uh, it is not only, and I'm telling you something you already know, but it is not only that you're providing the cash or the structures and the networks that are so needed, especially upon a new arrival, but it is how you do it, and how you do something is just as important as what you do. And today's uh, conversation has really been about the dynamics of how to arrive and how uh, you have been there for uh, all refugees. So we thank you. Uh, and if you have other questions, it's not the end of the conversation. It's just the end. So you can go take a break. Feel free to find uh, Paulina and Putasin and ask anything else. But thank you so much for your work. Thank you for joining the conversation. For more information on how to be involved with refugee resettlement, please visit IdahoRefugees.org. Mosaics is produced by the Idaho Office for Refugees with grant support from the MJ Murdoch Charitable Trust. Music by the Afrosonics. Production in partnership with SB Studios.